Al Anderson Afternoons, the podcast. David Chartrand is the president of the Manitoba Métis Federation, and he joins us on the phone now. Uh, David, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Al. How are you doing? Excellent. Thank you for uh, coming on for a couple of minutes here. Uh, Tell us in brief here what your COVID-19 announcement was earlier today. Well, we're announcing that we're putting up a million dollars in cash to assist in uh, the employers, employees that are being laid off, and companies can not be able to assist them during their time of need. We know that Canada is reacting, which we commend them very strongly, their actions. EI is being adjusted to assist people that are being laid off, and we know it'll be by the tens of thousands in this country. So we're trying to do our our part uh, and, and seeing how we can get the food into the table so we can keep them isolated and keep them at home. We have an elder package program. We t- contacted a, a thousand elders already. And we're putting a package plan together for them to keep them in their home shopping and giving a week's supply of groceries. Uh, we're working on that. We're also worried about single mothers, uh, homeless, uh, these types of things that people can look into and maybe apply. And we'll have the cash ability to take care of them. While Canada's trying to figure out how to still distribute their funds, we're looking at that. We're also bringing in two things, uh, Al, which I think is important. We're bringing in some mobile units. Uh, that will be uh, ability for us to isolate uh, people because in some of our communities we have 10, 12 people living in a two-bedroom house. So if somebody gets uh, COVID, how do you isolate them in, in that such crowded house? So we're taking taking them taking these mobile units. They're putting them inside there so it doesn't spread in the community or the family. Mm-hmm. We're also putting uh, a 248-bed camp on Treehorn just outside of Winnipeg here. Uh, it's our construction camp. We're remodeling inside right now, get, getting all the supplies necessary. And this will be for all Manitoba. Uh, I think we need to do our part. Uh, we got to take the stress off the system. And if this thing takes off and we can't curb it, then at least we'll be prepared. We'll be able to do our part to help out. And so that's being worked on right now as we speak. So we're trying our best to take the pressure off the health system too overall. But we know right now uh, we're in a worse state, state as a Métis nation. We have no clinics. We have no nurses. We have no doctors in our villages. So if it hits us, and we have the highest chronic illnesses out, and if it hits us, we're in big trouble. So we're trying to put a plan right now, to, and isolation, of course, is being said loud and clear by the Prime Minister and the Department of Health here in Manitoba. So we're doing our part to follow and see if we can bring down any chance of risk and hopefully bring down the crisis in our province. Talk a bit more about that. That was going to be my next question, David. Uh, you talk about some of the challenges that your people, the Métis people, are dealing with re-COVID-19 that maybe the rest of us aren't or, or don't understand. I thank you so much for that question, Hal, because you hear, for example, uh, Minister Miller speaking in Canada on a daily basis. We have all the ministers speaking, and he'll talk about Indigenous. But when you hear the programs that are coming out, uh, increasing the nursing in the nursing station, increasing clinics, supports, and getting supplies out through the regional uh, Indigenous Affairs Department, none of that is for us because we're, we don't have no connection with that. So when when they're announcing Indigenous right now, they're only announcing for First Nation. So And, and trust me, I, I applaud them for that. But the part that's scary and that people don't realize is the Métis, we have no staff. Uh, we don't have one health staff. I have 800 employees that work on all different sectors of, of the system. I don't have one health staff. We just finally got included with the Winnipeg Regional Health Authority for, to, to participate in discussions, but there is no strategy for us right now. And I think the province should really think about that carefully because if you leave us out, and it hits us, it's going to cost the system and potentially lives. So we need to figure out how do we work together, how do we solve this thing together, because right now the Métis people have nothing to turn to. We have no supports. And people may think, you're entitled to anything like anybody else. Well, say, for example, you live in Duck Bay. That's exactly where I come from now originally. The closest service is 90 miles away. So if an elder senior has got to get something, they got to go 90 miles to get it. And if they need to see a doctor, it's 90 miles away. 
and and so they're stuck in a situation that if something happens in those in those communities, where do you put them? How do you isolate them? How do you get service to them? How do you even give them advice? A lot of people still don't even have phones in these communities. So we're figuring out how on how do we get this information? How do we caution these people? And the young generation how is scaring us. Some of the young people are, are not taking this too seriously. They think yep. that they're immune. And they need to shake their heads. You've seen in Florida, you've seen these beaches, yep. and the young people are saying, let us handle it our way. You know, they're not stopping to think, what if it hits their grandparents? They're going to speak differently, I tell you, than speaking so boldly and saying, leave us alone. We know what we're doing. We're young. I think young people need to be educated very quickly by all of our province, and we need to tell them, hey, take this seriously. This is not a game. This is a world crisis that's happening everywhere in the world, and people are dying left and right in the world, and we can't let that happen in our country. We need to work together and set aside all of our differences. I don't care who you are, what what nature you are, indigenous or non-indigenous. We got to work as a team in this province right now, and we've got to save our our elders and our seniors. We've got to save them; they're number one priority. And those are disabled; those are also with chronic illnesses. We've got to do our part right now as a as a province and as a country. It's like you saw my show notes, David. I'm going to be talking about young people and how some of them, not all of them, but some of them are not taking this seriously enough. And, and that, uh, as you point out, uh, could be deadly, and we need to, we need to change that. Uh, you mentioned working with the province. Listen, it's no secret that you and Premier Pallister have had your differences. I believe this is a time to put politics and all that sort of stuff aside. Are you okay to work with the Premier on this? Well, in fact, if you, I did a CBC interview today, this, uh, this uh, lunchtime, and my message was loud and clear. I said I support the Premier on his, his, his decision to take an uh, emergency uh, state in, in this country, in this province. I said I support him 100%. I'll stand with my Premier. I'll work with my Premier. Uh, uh, this is not about our differences right now, I said. I, mm-hmm. let, I put my olive branch out there. I, I'm sure, I don't know if he'll give it back. <laughs> he'll, he'll give me back. I empty the olive branch, but my, my olive branch is still there. I will work with this Premier. I'll work with this government. It's not about politics. It's not about the hydro deals. It's not about our differences on, on consultation right now. It's about saving Manitobans, saving our seniors, number one issue, save our seniors and our elders. That's fundamental in our culture, and we will do everything in our power to work this province. But, Al, it's a two-way street. They've got to work with us, too. My Alice branch is out there, and I hope I, the Minister of Health contacts me, phones me. I'll answer my phone. I'll lay out the red, red carpet. Come work with me. I will work with you. I hope so, too. I hope that happens. And just one more uh, question on that front. Um, and uh, that's what I like about you, David. I don't always agree with you, but you always you you say it the way it is. You, you, you are a very strong leader. I think Premier Pallister, for the most part, has been a very strong leader on COVID-19. Would you not agree? Well, I think he's, he's taking some good, solid positions, and he's taking the position of planning the strategy. I, I, the only thing I was a little discouraged off the start is we were taking it too lightly. And, and we can see starting to spread in, in Canada, but of small numbers, we were in Saskatchewan, Manitoba, not being hit. And I know I think they're trying to balance the fear and the pandemic of people yeah. stopping working, stop shopping. So I can see their strategy. But, that, mm-hmm. but I think now that is no longer a strategy. Now it's about how do we curb it? How do we stop it? And as, the, as uh, Teresa Tam said on behalf of Canada, how do we plank it? How do we stop it? And we know... Seniors, people to get hit, and then if they get hit, they will die. So, people, we need to put our energy behind. How do we do it together? Mm-hmm. How do we help homeless people right now? I just drove from my office there. They're all across there. They're just in, in groups there. Imagine if it hits one of them there. There is no censoring those people aside, but they're going to connect with somebody else. They're going to be panhandling. They're going to be doing different things. We need a strategy. 
And this this includes the city. Uh, Mayor Bowman has not reached out to the Métis government yet, but I'll reach out to Mayor Bowman. I'll say, come on, Bowman, let's get together now. Let's What do we do? You just announced your budget. I have money, too. I'll announce mine. You know, that's why I'm putting a million dollars up for cash to take away the burden for the province or the, or the city. I will help other groups, not just the Métis. I will do everything in my power. If I have to put another million, I'll put another million. Our government is ready to step in and do what we can to protect all of Manitoba because it's not just a Métis issue. It's a Manitoba issue. It's a Canada issue, and it's a world issue, and we need to work together. Set aside our differences right now. Then we'll be fighting after three months from now for all I care. But right now, let's work together because this is a priority, and you're absolutely right, Al, and I applaud you and your program. You're going to start trying to educate the youth. Do not take this lightly. Do not play with this because if you get it and you pass it to an elder or your parents and they pass yeah. it to their parents, hell is coming with it. So we need to make sure that young people realize that this is one of the biggest crises probably in our lifetime. I'll probably not see another one at my age at 60. I'll probably not see another crisis like this coming again. But the mm-hmm. next generation, this is a time we need you to listen, especially the young people. Listen. Think about it as helping your grandparents. Forget about yourself for a second, but being selfish as a young person, think about it. It's about your grandparents, not about you. How do you protect them? If you're immune, you might be, but they aren't. So let's work on the, on the future of protecting our grandparents who actually just to be who we are today as, as young people and as parents. David Chartrand, thank you for your time and, and all the best with this. Thank you very much. And you too, you, you keep safe. Today is Extraterrestrial Abductions Day, E.T. Abductions Day today. Also, International Day of Happiness, International Earth Day, Day of Action Against Bullying and Violence. It's also Ravioli Day, Proposal Day, Snowman Burning Day, Won't You Be My Neighbor Day, World Day of Theater for Young, uh, for Children and Young People, World Frog Day, and World Sparrow Day, but as I said, E.T. Abductions Day, and that's why we're talking now to science writer and weirdologist Chris Rakowski. Chris, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Hal. Thank you for doing this. I saw that it was E.T. Abductions Day, and I thought, you know what? It's Friday. Uh, We have had uh, so much, obviously, serious news. I felt like having a bit of fun with my old friend Chris Rakowski today, so thanks for doing this. And and I say fun, not that ET abductions are are fun or the idea of it, uh, but you've uh, followed this UFO situation for decades. Where do you come down on ET abductions? Well, you know, we do get those reports from time to time that people said that they have been contacted directly by aliens and some feel that they have been selected by uh, creatures beyond our earth uh, to give us a message or to uh, you know the aliens want to help uh, humankind and mm-hmm. you know i have to say if if they they really want to do that this would be the time to give us a hand and you well no kidding we could use a hand right now uh, and i i yeah. will say this you know and and i'm into this stuff right i mean you're a weirdologist i'm into weird stuff as you know chris and uh, I've heard many accounts of E.T. abductions, and I will say this. These people truly believe this happened to them. Whether or not it did, that can be debated. But they, there is no question in my mind that most of these people really truly believe this happened to them. Oh, yeah, absolutely. We've had uh, uh, reports of uh, these experiences from uh, health professionals, from uh uh, you know, lawyers from uh, from professionals in all walks of life, engineers, mm-hmm. scientists, who say these things have happened. And what do you do with cases like that? I mean, uh, 
you know, and I remember speaking with a nurse who said, you know, I, I, I work long shifts and I don't have time to watch science fiction shows and I didn't have an anchovy pizza the night before. And, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm, I have this, this image, this, this vivid image of something bizarre happening to me. What do you do with that? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, she, like so many others, didn't want to go on the radio. They didn't want any publicity. Yeah. Uh, they just felt that they had to tell somebody and uh, they felt comfortable talking to me. And, you know, I've documented that and, and many, many other cases. So it's an interesting phenomenon. It may speak to our desire for, uh, you know, ha- having somebody up there who's watching over us. Maybe it's a mm-hmm. replacement for God, or maybe it's something as simple as, you know, misidentification of, of something else happening in their lives. But it's a very profound experience, and the numbers of people having uh, such experiences are, are fairly significant. And, you know, the uh, ET, experience, or ET uh, abduction day started actually in Toronto, of all places, uh, in hmm. 2008, as a result of a kind of a science fiction comic fair, kind of the equivalent of, of uh, the comic Con, I suppose. And uh, they just wanted to celebrate everything uh, E.T. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it caught on, and it, we've, it's been celebrated ever since. So it's the type of thing where, you know, it's good to have fun with it, but remember, at the back of it, is, is some there's some seriousness in the sense that people really do experience these things. That's right for studying by science. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to run out of time, so I'm going to skip over this quickly, but Chris has a great new book, relatively new book, about the Falcon Lake uh, UFO experience. And while that was not an abduction, very close, right? There was physical evidence. Um, we'll have you on another time to talk about that. I wanted to give the book a plug, though, because it's a great read. If you want to read it, Chris Rakowski uh, has that book out there and available. But I want to make sure I have enough, enough time to ask you, as a science writer, Chris Rakowski, and one of the best there is, as a science writer, what has caught your eye about COVID-19 as we try and get through all this information and, in some cases, misinformation that we're being hit with when it comes to the coronavirus? Well, you know, I hate to say it, but there there might be some some good that can come out of it. You know, that, that's not Pollyanna-ing. That's, that's, there's some positive there. Uh, in 1665, Isaac Newton... Uh, was caught up in the bubonic plague. He was actually at Cambridge University when they closed the university, and so he went into quarantine that year, and he made some of his amazing discoveries about the nature of light and went on to, you know, discover uh, so many other things. And even Einstein, um, in uh, 1917, I think, came out with his uh, theory of relativity for the first time, and that was just before the outbreak of the uh, Spanish flu, uh, and he went on to continue to do some astounding research while he was sequestered for a while, according to some historians. So, you know, there, uh, it's sometimes said that out of adversity breeds innovation. And, uh, you know, it, it could very well be. I know there's many scientists around the world, including some here in Manitoba, who are working very hard on vaccines and antivirals and so many other things that they're trying to stem what's going on. You know, this could spur some amazing research. And I'm hoping that a lot of young people who are out of school right now are going to consider going into medicine. Just imagine if, uh, you know, a quarter of all the students who are out right now, you know, think about, wow, I wonder what this coronavirus is all about, and they start doing research on it, and when they get back into classes, they can, you know, study it a little bit more, and some of them may be spurred on to become researchers who can really get to the bottom of understanding viruses and the nature of pandemics like this. And, you know, Spanish flu went by, uh, we go, we have a different name for it now, uh, something that is familiar to many people. H1N1 is Spanish mm-hmm. flu. And, yeah. you know, it wasn't as deadly uh, this time around in the in the mid-2000s. 
because we understood it a little bit more. Maybe that's what we need. Really good stuff there, Chris. Thanks a lot. Have a great weekend, and uh, hang in there, pal. You too, Hal. I guess about a month or so ago, I got an email from somebody that I haven't talked to in a little while. It's Winnipegger Sean Garrity, a filmmaker, and he joins us on the phone now. Sean, good afternoon. Good afternoon, sir. How are you? Excellent. Nice to chat with you again. We've been communicating by email for the past month or or month and a half, and when we originally set up this interview, it was to talk about the release today of your latest film, I Propose We Never See Each Other, after uh, again after tonight and uh, that release has been delayed just uh, before we get into it uh, uh, the the subject matter and the details when will it be released do you have a new date we do not have a new date because cineplex uh, doesn't know when they will be opening again um, and so we're sort of tentatively slated to screen once the theater chain reopens but uh, until they announce when that will be we're all kind of on tenterhooks waiting to find out you know we've talked to a lot of people who have had their plans changed because of covid19 you are the first filmmaker i am talking to here on cgob who has had to delay the release of his film because of this virus um just give me your your gut reaction to this situation and, and how it's impacted your life well, you know, I mean, obviously, first and foremost, it's it's much better than, you know, putting people in danger or actually getting the virus, right. um, you know. But, uh, yeah, you know, for us specifically, I mean, we spent, uh, you know, half a year financing this film and preparing for it, and then a year between the shooting and the editing and composing the music and all that stuff. And so you sort of have a project that is, you know, almost a two-year time span, and you are, are aiming at a certain date when you will premiere the film. So uh, I think for a lot of members of my team, it was kind of disappointing, obviously, to have a date that we've been looking forward to for so long kind of get scuttled. Um, you know, at the same time, obviously, there's much more important stuff going on, so it's not like any of us are like, oh, man, this isn't fair. Like, it, it's what's happening to everybody, and it's kind of what we all have to sort of uh, deal with. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you this right now. Uh, when it is released, you are coming back, and we're going to talk about the movie. And, again, it's called I Propose We Never See Each Other Again After Tonight. You can see the trailer and stuff at YouTube. And um, I'm telling you, man, this is it. really is a Winnipeg rom-com, isn't it? It's very, very Winnipeg. I mean, I lived in uh, Toronto for a couple years. Uh, during those years, most of the films that I made, we actually shot here? in Winnipeg, but uh, bought, you know, I was editing them back in Toronto. Uh, when I moved back uh, about two and a half years ago, uh, because my wife got transferred back here, uh, we, I, I got very enthused about making a very, very Winnipeg film. And so uh, the first couple of pieces that I put together, as I sort of said, okay, one of them's got to be Filipino, and one of them's got to be Mennonite, and it has to end at a giant wedding social. <laughs> Um, and so those were the pieces that I kind of started with, and we put the story together from there. It seemed to make sense that it would be a rom-com. I had a whole bunch of, you know, set pieces, Winnipeg kind of joke set pieces that I thought were very funny that have long been roaming the hard drives of my computer looking for a home. (laughs) 
and I sort of put them all together uh, in this film, and uh, we're very proud of it. I, and we can't wait for Winnipeg to see it. We just don't know when that will be. Well, and I just watched the trailer again, and I mean, there are so many shots of Winnipeg. Did you do all the filming in Winnipeg? We did. Yep, every last bit of it. Good for you. You know, Sean, um, we were talking earlier, Brett McGarry, one of the Couch Potatoes, uh, did a segment today because there's no new movies to talk about. So he did a segment on comfort movies. And, uh, you know, Mm. while it's disappointing that your uh, film release has been delayed and you say, well, it's, you know, no big deal, there's more important things. I'm telling you, man, I think movies and TV shows – and things like that are really helping a lot to get people through this situation. Would you not agree? Absolutely, I would. And, you know, one of the things that has changed for us is uh, I have a 12-year-old daughter, and we used to watch a movie once a week or so, uh, you know, obviously, you know, on a, on a night that's not a school night and uh, when she doesn't have an activity. But that is now because the school schedule has changed so much and she's able to do so much of her work during the day to almost a nightly screening. And it's really, you know, you, you want to talk about comfort movies because she's 12 years old. I'm able to show her stuff. that's a little more adult. Last night we watched Amadeus. I feel like I'm able to sort of curate for her sort of <laughs> the best films that I've seen in my life. And we watch yeah. them sort of night by night. It's actually, it's a great thing that really brings us together. Oh, that's excellent. Uh, you, I'm, you have to be working on your next one. We haven't even seen the latest, but you have to be working on it. And I'll just give your others a, a plug, too. Uh, Inertia was a big uh, award winner, even an award winner uh, for you. And then My Awkward Sexual Adventure, which is a great film, and I think that's around the time we met when that one was, was coming out. Um, we'll wait for the release of this one. But what else are you uh, working on? Uh, uh, can you give us any hints or, or tell us anything? Sure. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, the, the, the fact that we're all sort of staying in our homes presents a great opportunity, obviously, for me to uh, continue writing something that I've been working on for a while, as well as develop a number of other projects with collaborators who, you know, Jonas Chernick and I have worked together on a lot of movies, uh, but our schedules have been very busy and it's been difficult to find time when we can sit down together on the phone and, and talk about stuff. Now, now we got lots of that. So we are uh, working on a, Jonas and I are working together on a sort of a, a, a romantic comedy. Uh, I'm also working on a, a thriller about identity theft that is making me very paranoid. The more, the more research <laughs> I work, I do on it, the, the crazier. I, I must change my password twice a day. My wife thinks I'm insane. <laughs> um, That's funny. And, uh, you know, one of the most interesting things, I think, is I started, when I, when I came back to Winnipeg uh, two and a half years ago, I sort of said, you know, I'm, I'm interested in doing this very Winnipeg rom-com. One of the other stories I was very interested in doing was a story about uh, one of these um, refugees that at the time, two and a half years ago, were kind of walking across the border down in Emerson. You have these guys from Nigeria and whatever else. They were very dramatic stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I thought, wow, one of those stories would also be a really interesting, in a way, a very kind of quintessential Canadian story. Uh, you know, someone coming across the world to find safety uh, in Canada. Uh, and so I, I, I was going to develop one of those stories. Uh, I put it on the back burner when my romantic comedy started. But over the course of, of shooting the romantic comedy, actually one day I got in a tap car and my driver was the guy who I would decide would be the subject of that film. Um, and so he was like, oh, you're a filmmaker. That's very interesting. My life story is kind of like a film. He started telling me his story and I was like, wait a minute, I know who you are because I'm already thinking that your story would be a great film. Um, and so we started meeting uh, sort of about that, and that one's also in the works, and I'm excited. 
Very cool. Hey, Sean, really great chatting with you today. Uh, continued success. And again, the movie is called It's Not Going to Be Released Today as Planned because of COVID-19, but it's called I Propose We Never See Each Other Again After Tonight. Sean Garrity, Winnipeg filmmaker. Thanks a lot. Best of luck, and we'll talk when the film's going to be re- released, I promise. I look forward to it, sir. It's Friday, we're right after the 2.30 news, and so that means it's our time with Dr. Cyrus Dirks in a whole half hour here with Dr. Cyrus. DrCyrus.com is the website, D-R-S-Y-R-A-S.com on the phone, Dr. Cyrus. Hey, Doc, how are you? Very good, very good. Excellent. It's time. I am Isn't here, it? though, and we are, <laughs> we can proceed. <laughs> wow. Are you working from home as well? Uh, we are on the brink, I think. I, I just saw something in the news. I don't know if you can clarify it for me, but I, I think we are we are now going to be working from home, yes. Well, the province just declared a state of emergency uh, this morning, and that yep. brings a bunch of stuff with it. And uh, Tristan just mentioned all of it in the news, so I won't go into a lot of detail sure, sure. here. Uh, yep. But I will get to uh, more audio from Premier Pallister, Dr. Rusin, our Prime Minister as well, uh, after you and I are done uh, chatting mm-hmm. here. Um, I feel like when I have someone like you available, I, I have to at least talk a little bit uh, about this and, and how we're dealing oh, yeah. with this. And I know we've got a couple of uh, things planned that we're going to talk about here that sort of relate to uh, coronavirus. I was just talking to uh, the chiropractor, Dr. Trevor Clark from Connect Chiropractic, about stress. And you might not think that doing a radio show from home is stressful, but I'm telling you, it is. And I'm I'm happy and honored and, and proud to be able to do this from home, my home studio here. But talk mm-hmm. about stress, Doc, because, I mean, aside from, you know, and there are lots of people with lots of issues out there. Everybody's dealing with this in one way or another. Maybe you've been laid off. Maybe you're wondering how to pay your bills. But how do we all generally, Doc, try and deal with the stress that goes with this? Well, I mean, one of the first things that we that we want to do uh, to deal with the stress is you'd want to try to define it and you want to try to uh, identify and give words uh, to what you're experiencing. Now, when you first experience stress, what you experience is, you know, a physiological reaction and a lot of scattered thinking, uh, just a feeling of being overwhelmed. Sometimes people can't even notice that in themselves. Sometimes people are very aware um, but they'll often start to see it like, well, I think I'm stressed because I'm having physical symptoms. I'm not thinking straight. I'm losing things and maybe I'm getting sick. And I don't mean uh, COVID. I just mean like your immune system is starting to be uh, vulnerable. And uh, sometimes people are very aware of the stress that they experience it as they do. But when you have that, uh, one of the first steps is to kind of give it language, to define it, uh, to understand it better. And, uh, you know, that's something that is particularly difficult in a situation like this when uh, I feel like I've gone through this process maybe a few times this week now where I've had a new stress and I've had to kind of understand it, define it uh, and kind of cope with it. And then all of a sudden the situation changes and the reality is different. And all of a sudden you have to kind of go through that process again. And I'm, I'm sure a lot of people out there can relate to that. Uh, that we're all just kind of stumbling over the first step again and again and again uh, and probably having difficulty getting to other steps after it. Well, and that's the other part of this, okay? So it's the stress, but then that stress is, I think, made worse by the fear of the unknown because we don't know where we're going with all this. That's right. I mean, people are trying to give language to it. 
I, I mean, I'll give another personal example. I, I've written about three, you know, it feels like I've written three new policy manuals this week, uh, you know, trying to understand it, trying to define, uh, you know, what it is so that it's not so unknown. And it is reassuring every time to myself and my staff when I get one completed because it feels like you have that definition and you kind of know what, what the where the boundaries are. Uh, but then all of a sudden, the unknown kind of crops up again and you have this new reality. And, and there's always this kind of like, well, how long is this reality going to last? And we're right. We don't know what's coming. And that uncertainty can lead to a lot of denial uh, or panic, uh, different reactions for everybody. And uh, it can be really overwhelming, uh, you know, over time. Sure can be. All right, uh, to some planned stuff here that we want to talk about. Here's the headline. Coronavirus is accelerating a culture of no touching, and here's why that's a problem. You're right. We're social distancing, right? We're not Mm -hmm. hugging. We're not high-fiving. We're not even bumping anymore. Um, We're not touching. What does that mean now, and what might it mean in the future? Well, I mean, touching is, uh, you could think about it as being optional and for sure. I mean, it's not as important as you know, food and shelter and water and breathing. Um, but in terms of, you know, long-term survival uh, and mental health, it is not optional. Like we, we need touch in order to be able to, um, in order to be able to function well, in order to have, uh, you know, good mental health. And uh, we have lots of research to show that even minor touch, um, you know, touch, uh, you know, over short periods of time in situations like, for example, a nurse, Touching a patient before a surgery uh, can reduce stress for that surgery. You know, in a nursing home, touching somebody who is elderly can increase their food intake. Um, and so these are like matters of uh, health and survival for these patients to reduce stress at these times and to eat, and to eat uh, you know, when they're, when they're elderly. And, uh, and that just kind of extends over to us in that if we aren't uh, experiencing touch, and we've already had a movement against touch where it's felt like it's, you know, is it inappropriate? People get nervous and anxious about it. And here we are having another movement against touch. Uh, And, you know, again, the future is uncertain. How will our culture think about touch, even if the coronavirus isn't around anymore or not a threat anymore? How will we recover, uh, you know, from this? Well, and I'll add about, uh, I'll add to your, thoughts about touch here by saying yesterday i was talking to carolyn classen and i got emotional no no surprise mm-hmm. there ain't eh? no big headline mm-hmm. there right doc i got kind of emotional yesterday when i was talking about you know we're not uh, connecting with each other the way we normally do so we have to think outside the box maybe we do that by facetime or however we do that but if you are at home with your significant other or your kids or family members more touching right like that's mm-hmm. that's been the and jackie and i've always been pretty touchy-feely with each other but i mm-hmm. i find that we're even more so like that because of the circumstances what's going on around us and so when you do have somebody close to you uh your significant other your kids touch them more like you hug them mm-hmm. and and love them more right for sure i think uh one of the times uh that touch is you know the one of the times when touch has the biggest impact in the research is when it's around comfort. And so it's such a sad time to have touch become uh, scarce when people are at most need for comfort. Uh, and so that's just a really poor um, or really negative joining where we're having people in significant distress and we're not able to comfort each other. And I mean, for couples and families out there, 
they are able to get touch from each other. And I encourage that. Like you said, there's a lot of people out there who are single and alone. And I have people coming to my clinic and being like, I go to get a haircut uh, to get touch. I go and get a massage to get touch. And I, I'm not talking about anything unseemly here. It's just like to have somebody touch me uh, on my head or on my back um, is helpful for my mental health. And so when you think about people who are already having difficulty uh, feeling connected physically to their world socially, and now to have this imposed, uh, making some of these services unavailable and uh, making just social touch like handshakes unavailable, uh, you know, it can be devastating and uh, extremely isolating. Hmm. Interesting. All right, one more headline here, and then we'll take a quick break, and we'll come back and continue chatting with Dr. Cyrus Dirksen. The headline is, Gratitude Interventions Don't Help with Depression and Anxiety. Explain. Well, I mean, there's a lot uh, of good things about gratitude. So what I don't want to have happen here is to talk about how gratitude in some ways isn't doing what people think it's doing and have people kind of come away with a negative attitude towards gratitude. One of the things to say is that gratitude is uh, connected. People who are more have more gratitude do have better mental health, but that doesn't mean that the gratitude itself is actually causing them to have better mental health uh, on a daily basis. That So it's not an intervention. Like you can't go and have somebody sit down and, and, and um, make a gratitude journal or things like that and expect the depression or anxiety to lift. The research doesn't support that. It does support it if, you, if you're in a good place and you, and you use gratefulness or if you're a grateful person, that's part of good mental health. It's a sign of good mental health and it might be maintaining mental health. Uh, but unfortunately, and this goes counterintuitive to I think what a lot of people see and feel, is research isn't showing that it's lifting depression or lifting anxiety off of people uh, in the way that um, in the way that people think, and uh, that can be uh, a little bit discouraging. Uh, one thing though I want to say is that in my sessions I see gratitude as being, and they, they do find this, is that gratitude can be very powerful in relationships. So if you uh, say something grateful, and I do this in my couple sessions, especially when people get very stressed. Uh, and when they say something that they're thankful about their partner, then it can create a huge difference in their relationship very quickly in terms of de-escalating emotions. Uh, and that's what they did find as well as, as an intervention in relationships uh, or as something in relationships in particular, gratitude can be very helpful. Al Anderson Afternoons, the podcast, is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you find your favorite podcasts.